You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you would turn to Hebrews chapter 12. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 12, we'll be looking at verses 18 through 29 today. It's a big passage. Um, normally on Lord's Supper Sundays, I preach a little less. Um, I know that's why maybe some of you look forward to Lord's Supper Sundays more than you do the other Sundays. I don't know. Um, but um, this is a big passage to, to tackle today. And so we're really just going to kind of do some highlights over it. And I encourage you this week to take this passage and make it part of your daily study. To, to not just stop today with what we do here in this time, but to really allow God this week to work uh, on you and with you through this passage. We've been reminded as we started in Hebrews however many months ago that in contextually uh, speaking, this is a letter to a group of Christians who had come out of the Jewish faith. And they had faced persecution, they had faced resentment. Um, we read a couple chapters back, uh, he, the author makes mention of them joyfully accepting the plundering of their property. Like there had been things happening to them. But in all these things happening to them, they had begun, or at least some of them had begun, it seems, to want to stray from this new faith in Christ and possibly even return to the old ways. And so this book is really um, a re-evangelizing, if you will, of this community, a strengthening of their faith, and it includes a series of warnings to them as well. And really in this passage, verses 18 through 29, we're going to see both of those things. We're going to see this re-evangelizing, this recommitment, this re-strengthening of their faith, encouragement, and even within it a series or at least a warning not to turn back. So let's read, follow along with me, Hebrews 12, beginning verse 18, and we'll go through the end of the chapter. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. 
there's a comparison being made here between two mountains. The first is unnamed, but by the description of what the author writes, we can conclude it to be Mount Sinai, the place where the law was given to Moses and to Israel. And we see a description there in verse 18 through 21 about that mountain. He speaks of it being a mountain that cannot be touched, blazing fire, darkness, gloom, the sound of a trumpet. And there's a, I would encourage you this week, if you're not fully familiar with what happened or what transpired when the law was given to Moses and the people of Israel, take some time this week and read Exodus 19 and Exodus 20. Take some time and include in your reading Deuteronomy 5 as Moses retells that story. And get a glimpse, get an understanding of what happened and what transpired when Moses brought the people of Israel to the foot of that mountain to receive the law from God. There's several descriptions here in verses 18 through 21 that speak about this. But the most significant of them, at least to me, is found at the end of verse 19. Look there again at verse 19 with me. He says, the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg no fur, that no further messages be spoken to them. This is the way it's recorded in the book of Exodus in chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. When all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us. And we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. This is the most significant description here for me of what the author does in this passage in Hebrews. Obviously, uh, the, the, the torment, the, the storm, the, the, the not being able to come near the mountain or the animal would be stoned, like all that's significant. But to me, the most significant piece here is that at the mountain of Sinai, at the receiving of the law, God's people did not want to hear the voice of God. God's people said, instead, Moses, God's voice fills us with so much fear and so much trembling, we'd rather you speak to us. That's incredibly significant. And sometimes I think we're that way. Sometimes I think we would rather have someone else speak to us than do the hard work of digging into the scripture, than taking time in our lives to be quiet before the Lord, to listen for his truth, to listen to the direction of his spirit, of truly discerning what God has to say for us and to us. We'd rather you speak than us actually listen to the voice of God and particularly about the very sin in our lives. Sometimes preachers get this said to them. Well, I wish you'd preach on the sins of the world more. Well, I agree that that needs to happen. But you do understand that all the letters in the New Testament are addressed to the saints of God. And addressed to the saints in the churches. And addressed to them to say, stop doing the things you're doing. You understand that when the, when the voice of God comes to us through his word, through the power and the presence of his Holy Spirit to we who are already saved in Christ, it's to let us know to stop doing what we're doing. And that, I think, is probably one of the biggest reasons why we tend not to want to hear the voice of God. 
because he is a convicting voice. He is a voice that lays us bare and wide open through his word, through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. His voice has us look into the mirror and go, oh, I am not so good as I thought I might be. Overall, to these Jewish Christians, the stories of Mount Sinai were not comforting. When Israel met God at Mount Sinai, it was a terrifying experience. But the author makes this comparison. He says, you've not come there. Look at what he says beginning verse 21 again. Indeed, it's so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion. You say, what is Mount Zion? Well, Zion is in the Bible synonymous with the earthly city of Jerusalem. The first mention of it in the Bible is in 2 Samuel 5. David captures the city held by a group called the Jebusites. And it was the city of Jerusalem. And verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 7 of 2 Samuel says this. David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. When the building of the temple occurred, it occurred near Mount Zion. It became known as the dwelling place for God. Psalm 132, verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. And on and on through the Old Testament, this name Zion or Mount Zion is seen as synonymous with the earthly city of Jerusalem. But we now, in 2022, have the ability to look backwards in history and see, oh, but that city was destroyed. That city was overtaken. Then what can the author mean here that we have come to Mount Zion? Well, here Mount Zion begins to take on this spiritual or this heavenly meaning. We had a glimpse of it in chapter 11. Let me remind you of that glimpse uh, beginning in chapter 11, verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak this way make it clear they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. And therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. What is that city? It is the heavenly city of Mount Zion. It is the new Jerusalem that will descend one day upon the redeemed earth. And it is the place and the presence where God dwells. And it is the place and the presence where all who are with God will dwell. And look at the description. Mount Sinai was this terrifying, terrifying event. But look at the description of Mount Zion beginning in verse 22. You've come to Mount Zion in the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering. I'm sure you use the word festal in your everyday conversation quite a bit. Um, it simply means that it, the angels are gathered and they are dressed or adorned, if you will, almost in a very festival-like or joyous celebration. He says, you've come to this city with these angels, and they are rejoicing. Where, where does he get this from? I think it could be a reference to what John would see in his vision in Revelation, in Revelation 5, 11 and 12. 
I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Though the word there says saying, understand the scripture there is talking about worship. It's talking about these angels in festal gathering, these angels in a festival type atmosphere, these angels with overjoyed hearts, minds, spirits, however you want to describe it to put it in human terms, worshiping God at the throne. It says a lot about what worship should look like, doesn't it? I've told you many times before, and I'll tell you many times again, I don't think worship means uniformity. I don't think worship means we all worship the same. But there ought to be a little bit of joy in our worship. There ought to be a little bit of oomph when we gather to praise him. He says, not only have you come to that, but you've come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. This, this is most likely New Testament saints who have gone on and died to be with the Lord in that, in that moment. Jesus was the firstborn of them. They then became the firstborn after Jesus, and they've gone on to be with the Lord. Side note here, the church role won't get you into heaven, only the enrollment in the book of life. These are saints who did not trust membership. These are saints who trusted Jesus. He says, you come to God, the judge of all. And that might seem initially to be sort of a scary thing. Oh, we've come into the one who's going to judge all men and all mankind. How is he going to judge? The first level of judgment is going to be, what have you done with Jesus? And for those who have trusted and put their faith in Jesus and have accepted the grace and the gift of salvation, that will not be a scary judgment for those of us who have done that. And that is how he can say, you've come to God, the judge of all, and that be comforting. Because you know where you stand in Jesus. He says, you've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, most likely referencing the Old Testament saints from chapter 11 and, and others who their righteousness, their belief, their faith in God was made perfect through Jesus Christ. And then he concludes it this way, beginning verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You have not come to Mount Sinai where you tremble in fear and where you dare not inch closer to the mountain and where you dare not cross the boundary that God set. You've come to Mount Zion where there's rejoicing, where there's presence with God, where there's community and faith with the New Testament saints and the Old Testament saints alike. And to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, the one who, who formed that new covenant that we're going to remember today in the Lord's Supper, to give us grace, to give us mercy, and his blood cries out better than Abel's blood. What is that reference to? Abel killed by Cain, the blood of Abel spilled on the ground, cried out for vengeance. It cried out for justice. Jesus' blood speaks a better word because it cries out for mercy and it cries out for grace. Jesus' blood cries out from the cross for mercy for all who would be willing to receive it. And mercy is always a greater word than vengeance. 
So he says, you've not come to this mountain, but you've come to this mountain. And then he says in verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth, how much, how, how much less will we escape if we reject him who's speaking from heaven? At Mount Sinai, Israel couldn't even stand to be in the presence of the voice of God. Moses, you speak to us. God's voice is too much for us. But now in Jesus, we have come to the one who is speaking by way of the heavens. The writer of Hebrews laid this out for us in the very first verses. Chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And his voice is comforting, and his voice is encouraging, and his voice is true, and his voice is righteous, and his voice is all of these things. But understand, the warning here is that we would not refuse it. That we would not refuse and to, to listen to it. And all through these books, all through this book of Hebrews, have been these various warnings Hebrews 2, the warning against drifting from the message and the word. Hebrews 3, the warning against hardening our hearts in unbelief by the sin that we so willingly take on. Hebrews 6, the warning against deliberately falling away. Hebrews 10, the warning against deliberately sinning after knowing the truth. And as we've worked through each of these warnings, the, the common thread through all this has been understanding that these warnings are not about losing your salvation, but these warnings were those to the community then and the community now who had a very superficial view of being saved, but by their turning away, by their drifting, by their being hardened by their own sin, by their here in Hebrews 12 refusing to hear are revealing that they really had no faith at all. And we have this warning. The better word of verse 24 is the blood and the better word of the cross, of forgiveness, of grace, of mercy, of new life. And he says in verse 25 again, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, who's calling you, O oh brother, O oh sister in Christ, to greater faith. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking you, who's calling you to more boldness, who's calling you to more mission, who's calling you to more work for the kingdom, who's calling you more out of this earth and into his kingdom. See to it that you do not refuse, for if they did not refuse when he spoke on earth, how much less... Will the or how much more really will the judgment be if we refuse him who speaks from the heavens? In light of Hebrews 12, it does us well to be reminded of Paul's words when he writes about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. And he says this in verse 26, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What does it mean for you and for me individually, for us collectively to proclaim the Lord's death today when we take these elements in just a moment? Well, it means we're proclaiming that Christ's death actually accomplished something in our lives. 
We're proclaiming that he made us new. We're proclaiming that he forgave us of our sins. We're proclaiming that he has filled us with grace and mercy. We're proclaiming that he's filled us with the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. This is not some spiritual thing we check off of our list and just make sure we do it once a month. This is proclaiming. This is me proclaiming to you, you proclaiming to me, you proclaiming to each other on either side of the aisle and in the balcony and everywhere else that we are declaring that Christ's death accomplished something in our lives and made us new, that we are not refusing what he has to say, but instead we are fully acknowledging what he has to say. We're proclaiming that we've not come to Mount Sinai, but we've come to Mount Zion to the presence of God, to the presence of Christ, to the presence of angels, to the presence of Old and New Testament saints. We're proclaiming that we're saved by virtue of being in the Lamb's book of life, not the membership role of the church. Today, taking the Lord's Supper in context of what is written here in Hebrews 12 means that we are running our race with the end in mind. And the end is the fulfillment and the culmination and the full realization of Mount Zion. A one-time, one-day place where for all of eternity, all these things that the author has written about in Hebrews 12 will be ours forever. Innumerable angels engaged in worship. Rubbing elbows with Old Testament and New Testament saints alike and every other saint that's occurred in between. Being at the feet of Jesus. Having the opportunity to sit and gaze upon his holiness. As you receive the elements today, the challenge for us all is this. Is our spiritual walk, is our Spiritual viewpoint as Christians, more Mount Sinai or more Mount Zion? Are, are, we, are we fearful to come to the Lord? Are we fearful to hear his voice? Are we shutting it out by, by virtue of other things? Are we law-bound or are we freed by grace? The writer's already really given us a hint of this all the way back in Hebrews 14, or chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. There's confidence at Mount, Sinai, or at Mount Zion. There was zero confidence at Mount Sinai. There's confidence in who Jesus is and his work and how he's changed us. There was zero confidence at Mount Sinai, and we know that because they didn't even want to hear the voice of God. But Mount Zion says, come. Come by virtue of the Lamb. Come by virtue of the King. Come by virtue of his work on the cross. Come and rejoice and hear and know and be changed. And it is confidence not in ourselves. It is confidence not in our religious works. It is confidence not in our heritage or our history or our traditions. It is confidence in Jesus. The one who was, the one who is, and the one who forever shall be. See to it today that you do not refuse him who speaks. 
Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.